Hello and welcome to the second episode in the UTS ACRI podcast's new series, Delivering Analysis of COVID-19 and its impacts within the context of the Australia-China relationship. In the previous episode, Professor James Lawrenson, economist and director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, discussed the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic for the Australia-China economic relationship through the lens of Australian exports. In this episode, Professor Lawrenson is joined by Dr. Jeffrey Wilson, Research Director at the Perth US Asia Centre and a specialist in the regional economic integration of the Indo-Pacific, to discuss the economic implications of COVID-19 for Australian imports and for its foreign investment environment. In the latest ACRI podcast, I spoke around COVID-19 and the Australia-China economic relationship, but I did that primarily through the lens of exports. That is, with 38% of Australia's goods exports now going to China, accounting for more than 7% of Australia's GDP, how worried should we be about the knock-on effects of COVID-19 for China's economy and, in turn, Chinese demand for Australian goods and services? But there's two other dimensions and they are dimensions of the Australia-China economic relationship that don't get as much attention as exports. And these are imports and supply chains and foreign investment. And the truth is COVID-19 is raising challenges in these areas too. Fortunately, today I'm going to be talking to an economist who is an expert precisely in these two areas and it's someone who has been thinking a lot recently around how COVID-19 is raising challenges in them. Dr. Jeff Wilson is an economist and research director at the Perth US Asia Centre and with a PhD from the ANU on supply chains. Jeff, welcome to the ACRI podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on, James, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to be having this conversation as well because as a trade policy specialist, we can sometimes get frustrated that people in Australia equate trade policy with how do we export more things to Asia, whereas <laughs> trade policy is actually how you integrate yourself with the global economy, which, which means imports too. And for a long time that's been forgotten, but I think in the last month all of a sudden there has been a, a national realisation that imports are also trade policy. Absolutely. And Jeff, you did your PhD in supply chains. How good is that? That must come in handy right about now. <laughs> it, it has taken almost 10 years for this to come round, but this is my time. So. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, Jeff, let's get into it. So the first question is this one. I've been reading recently a lot about how COVID-19 is exposing Australian supply chains as being, quote unquote, too dependent on China. Now, let me start with perhaps the supply chain that is most on our mind, rightly, at the moment, and that being the supply chain for medical and pharmaceutical goods. Now, I read a piece in The Australian on March 7th by Peter Jennings, who's the Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra, and he wrote of COVID-19's implications. He said, quote, China locks its factories down and within days, Australia faces shortages of medical supplies, unquote. Jeff, exactly how dependent on China are we in these supply chains? Um, 
One of the interesting things about this is uh, China is certainly a major producer and exporter of medical products, and that ranges from some of the things we've seen in the news recently about personal protective equipment, PPE, for medical staff, um, also machines, uh, ventilators and intubation kits, and also the wide range of pharmaceuticals that you, you need across the healthcare system. Um, but if you actually look at it in value terms in the global economy, it's actually quite a small player, really. In um, the last year for which data was fully available, which is 2018, um, the world's largest um, pharmaceutical and medical exporter was the European Union that produced 47% of global export supply of these products. Um, second behind that was the United States at 20%. Um, and then five, third was Mexico, <laughs> with China what? close behind also on 5%. So w there's certainly, in, and this of course varies between product lines. So there might right. be a particular product that one country has a specialization in due to economies of specialization. But across the board, the view that China is, is the world's pharma producer is not really borne out by statistics. In fact, much of what we get comes from all around the world and the EU and the US are effectively the market incumbents in these sectors at the moment. Right. So, Jeff, could I take that a bit a step further? So now, of mm. course, COVID-19 is spreading rapidly in the European Union and the United States. So are you saying that potentially what could happen is factories in the European Union and America could shut down and that could expose us in Australia to supply chain risks for these medical supplies. Yeah, definitely. And, and across all countries, um, you've kind of got three problems to the supply chain risk. The first one is demand has just increased. All around the world, medical right. services need more things. So it's hard to ramp up supply to meet a, a sudden surge of demand. It's not surprising it's harder to buy these products out of China because Chinese hospitals are placing orders. Everyone's hospitals are placing orders. The second right. problem is also, as you've intimated, the supply shutdown. So when we have public health measures to lock down society, workers can't get to factories, supply chains get interrupted, and in, indeed what we'd see is supply can get constrained, um, though governments around the world are doing everything to keep the factories open as fast as possible mm. and indeed some factories are converting you will have seen lots of stories about um uh, alcohol distillers making hand sanitizer <laughs> to, to kind of <laughs> i'm a bit fill worried about that one jeff <laughs> well yeah yeah, yeah. So I, I worry about supplies of uh, single malt scotch whiskey from the scottish <laughs> island sometimes but right. the third problem that that, that we need to talk about is actually export restrictions. Um, and this is that when governments um, slap bans on the export of medical products, often without just thinking it's a crisis, we need these for ourselves, we're going to just blanket ban these kind of exports. The Global Trade Alert think bank at the University of St. Gallen in, in Switzerland has actually recently done a study and found that nearly 50 countries since the start of this year have put some kind of export restriction in place around medical exports. And over the weekend, Australia Australia joined that rogues gallery of countries that uh, have, have banned the exports of certain medical products. So we've got demand outstrips supply suddenly, plus supplies constrained by public health measures, and then you have governments implementing these export restrictions. Um, and that certainly leads to what you know we'd know in the trade system from the 1930s as beggar thy neighbour trade policies. If everybody brings down the shutters, then where, can, where do you get the products from? And right. this is diabolical for Australia because we import, we export about $3 billion of pharmaceutical and medical goods a year and import about 14 or 15. Um, so mm. Australia is net import dependent by a long way on these products. Um, and if those kind of regulatory restrictions kick in, global value chains in this industry shut down, then there is going to be a serious problem, not just for us, but for the whole world economy. 
Right. Okay. Jeff, uh, pharmaceutical products we've just talked about, you mentioned that Australia is very vulnerable to a shutdown of these supply chains broadly, although perhaps not so much to China, but to, to other markets. Are there any other goods that you particularly worry about in the context of supply chain in an Australian context? Um, one of the things about supply chains is, and some research out of CSIS in Washington has actually found this, is that we know very little about the geography of these industries. Um, so we really, you really don't know where a lot of the products come from. You might know where we imported them most recently from, but they can have imports components from other countries, and it's hard to trace the supply chain back to source. Um, so what this means is there's going to be a whole heap of unexpected things that are just going to become hard to get that you wouldn't have thought mm. of. Um, some some of them that I might just for an Australian audience, some um, the supply of fertiliser to the farming sector is going to be come under pressure. Okay. We've also seen some things in soap products. Australia imports $860 million of soap a year, mostly from Southeast Asia, um, which will be important at the moment. There's also certainly here in Perth in, West, in Western Australia, there's been some local cases of um, apartment building construction projects who've struggled to get glass for the windows because mm. these were supplied out of Chinese factories whose workers were stood down during their most intense period of shutdown. And if you know about, if you've ever watched Grand Designs, you know if the windows don't turn up, the whole project shuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're going to see this across the board. Australia Industry Group reports that many of its members who may come food products like muesli bars and other packaged foods, they've still got the food because it's locally grown, but they can't buy the plastic wrap to wrap the muesli right. bar in, for example, because mm. it comes from Southeast Asia. It's going to be very hard to say. I couldn't put a dollar figure on it, but what we've certainly seen is all of these little things that you wouldn't expect coming out of the woodwork. So if mm. for Australian companies, they need to be very proactive in terms of managing their supply chains and talking to their suppliers, but also who their suppliers' suppliers are. Um, yeah, they may right. not be able to do anything to change this, but certainly it's now is the time to study the geography of your mm. supply chain, not just one country back either. Right. Okay. So, Jeff, we've talked a bit about um, concerns around specific goods. Um, another thing I've heard a lot recently is that COVID-19 demonstrates some general fundamental deficiencies in Australian supply chains. Um, for example, on the 28th of February, uh, Michael Shoebridge, also from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, wrote on the Institute's blog, The Strategist, quote, it was assumed that companies, Australian companies, could manage supply chain risks. If that was ever true, it's not now. Close quote. He then warned of, quote, growing risks from over-concentration of global production in China. And a, because of that, a reordering of global supply chains is necessary. That's good public and corporate policy. Close quote, he said. Um, a few days later, on the 3rd of March, uh, Rory Metcalf, the director of the National Security College at the Australian National University, also wrote of COVID-19 on ASPI's blog. He said, quote, diversification is now a necessity, not just strategic aspiration, end quote. Jeff, is that the way you see it? H has COVID-19 demonstrated that Australian companies simply can't be trusted in managing their supply chains? and that there is now a firm case for government intervention to effectively force diversification of these supply chains. Mm. Look, this is a really interesting point that's raised by this, and there's probably two stories here. One's about Australia's export dependence on China, which is, is actually related to our export bundle, which is primary commodities, 
for steel and, and um, high premium agriculture products and tourism. And that's that, that's a different story. But, but when we look at the import side of the picture, China does loom very large, the single greatest source of imports, though that's true for practically um, all major economies in the world. But something that we need to bear in mind here about these complex supply chains is that they're actually multi-country. And our trade statistics report an import from the country which it was last had value adding done to it, not every country that's been involved in its production. Um, I right. mean, the example everyone uses is smartphones, for example, that are nearly all exclusively have the final stage of assembly in China. And if you look at your iPhone, you'll probably see made in China stamped on the back of the Apple product. But this isn't really a made in China product. There are microprocessors from Taiwan, DRAM from often Korea, in some cases, hard disk components are made in Southeast Asia, particularly Thailand. There's USIP. So when, when you see our imports come disproportionately from China, what that really reflects is, is China's role in the industrial multi-country value chain as, as being the final assembler, not the only mm. maker. And given that fact, the import statistics kind of over-exaggerate what's going on there. If there's a problem in Korea and it can't supply DRAM to Chinese factories in Shenzhen, you're still not going to be able to get your iPhone, even if everything is business as usual in China. So the mm. fact that these things go back multiple steps in these value chains, which are more like webs, really means that having a look at headline, last port of, of departure statistics in the international trade statistics doesn't really tell you where you get your stuff from. Right. So that's interesting. So even if we, even if, say, for example, the government somehow forced a diversification away from a Chinese supplier, in effect, is what you're saying, Jeff, they're actually forcing a diversification away from more than China and perhaps forcing a diversification away from countries that we can't actually obviously see because that Chinese product um, is being fed by supply chains from other countries as well. What diversification would mean if you just use raw trade statistics is we want somebody else to do the final stage of manufacture. And so we have seen a little bit of this happening actually over the last 18 months because the US-China trade war, where certain value chains have had that terminal stage relocated to other parts of the region, particularly in some you know lower skill, more labour-intensive products that have moved from southern Chinese factories into actually Vietnam. And so you see a little bit of a reduction in Chinese exports in certain products and a big uptick of equal in Vietnam. Than these ones. But the point I'd make here is if, you know, somebody might say, oh, that's good, we've reduced our import exposure. But if Vietnam is just doing the final stage instead of someone in, in Gansu province in China, you're not actually really, if it's still the same industrial stack back to raw materials, you're not really achieving diversification in the sense that what we're talking about. Like the point right. about diversification yeah. is, is well made, but given the complex industrial geography of these chains, it's much more uh, challenging to do it than simply saying, well, make sure that made-in stamp on it is applied by a country that's not China doesn't necessarily reduce your exposure. And indeed, our exposure is actually to Asian value chains, not just Chinese value chains. So I, I, the, the sentiment's a good one, but what we need to do is actually think about, well, what does diversification mean in a complete sense to achieve it rather than just a, a knee-jerk last stage thing? That is fascinating, Jeff. Um, next question. 
So I was listening to a one of my favourite podcasts the other night, um, and that is the Australia in the World podcast, hosted by Alan Gingell and Darren Lim from the Australian National University. They were talking about COVID-19, and they both seem persuaded that one of the outcomes of this COVID-19 episode is that national security concerns will increasingly trump economic efficiency concerns. So I wanted to ask you how far this might go. I mean, we can all agree... I hope that there's some logic to having strategic stockpiles of certain goods that are fundamental to national security. We might think of fuel or in a pandemic like now, we might think of face masks, where the government Mm -hmm. is at the centre of ensuring supply chains to the public and to emergency workers as well. But it could also become extremely messy and cost prohibitive for taxpayers if the government were to insert itself into supply chains on a grander scale. So how do you think this will unfold? Are there, are there smart ways the government can make a difference, aiding national security, but without completely destroying market incentives and economic efficiency at the same time? I mean, this is a this is a big question for trade policy specialists at the moment is what's actually a strategic good? And I mean, everyone of kind of, you know, our generation and older has lived in a golden era of almost over half a century of, you know, uninterrupted relative peace and harmony in the global trade system. No one alive remembers a trade war or something like COVID, which is the economic effects in terms of supply chain disruption are going to look a lot like a trade war as well. We may as well be in a trade war if supply chains get cut. And because we've had this for three generations, we kind of got used to the idea that you know, the market and international business could be left to take care of everything. And so what was strategic was, as you said, you might have fuel in there, probably nuclear products for obvious reasons, um, military equipment to something, maybe some really high-tech stuff around satellites and something. But the majority of our economy could be left to the market because you could. And we've, we've, had, we've had unbridled globalisation and a huge uplift in um, global integration for three generations because of that. Um, I mean, what COVID does with a, in a much more pointed way than a US-China trade war last year did is show that we can't rely on that assumption anymore. And we have to think about, well, is that basket of strategic goods slightly larger? Okay, we put face masks and hand sanitizer and ventilators in the basket. So, so what else? Do we put soap in the basket? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do we, do, at what point do you start thinking about certain foodstuffs? Uh, basic yes. grains and cereals. Um, how do you how do you understand what a strategic product that you want governments to maintain stockpiles on at extraordinary cost to the taxpayer versus what things can be left to the market and are non-strategic? In peacetime and wartime, the answer to that question is a different thing. Um, and as yes, countries right. describe the battle against COVID as a war footing, and, and yeah. which, which it, it, it is and it should be, we probably need to have a discussion about how far that goes. Um, I don't think anyone wants to see the Australian government running a national stockpile of um, feed grain for pigs, for example. Right. <laughs> but, 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 you know, there is a point where you have to decide, well, maybe what we were thinking was strategic, quote unquote, needs to get a bit larger. Um, and how can we have a, an informed discussion about what's in and what's out? Mm, Yeah, and I guess the other challenge with COVID-19 is that there is still, I think, the the base assumption is that after six months, perhaps 12 months, we are going to be over it. So goods that we might want to include in that strategic basket right now might actually not be so compelling in 12 months' time. Would that be fair Mm. to say? That would be fair to say. And it would be an interesting question about how we can enact these policy responses. And this is true for trade policy, but 
investment policy, general things about rationing at coals down the road from you for toilet paper, um, across the board is that what we'd want to avoid is a situation where we start redrawing these definitions ad infinitum. Um, this yeah. is a disastrous problem and it will face us for hopefully 6, 12, 18, you know, it's it's hard to put a figure on it and we sure. cross our fingers for the vaccine developers who, who will be the ultimate thing that will end this crisis globally is when we have a functioning vaccine. Um, mm. But even five years is not forever. And, and what we'd be really looking towards is when we do these regulations and change our idea of what's normal and what's strategic, that they're done in a temporary manner, they're time limited, they have specific conditions around when they come right. in, and therefore when those conditions release, we can also release these policies. I, I would cite actually the example of the, the West Australian state government here, who you may have seen in the eastern states, has imposed some fairly draconian travel restrictions, even on intrastate travel, um, to control the spread of uh, coronavirus into remote Indigenous communities. Um, mm. They've very clearly made written legislation that says these are temporary measures that will be reviewed under certain times and they will be released when certain things happen. Um, and, right. and that's obviously far removed from trade policy, but it shows the right way to do policy here is don't just put it on the books and never have it come back off, but be very clear about why you're doing it and how long you're going to be doing it for. Mm. Okay. Uh, that kind of leads into my next question, Jeff. Uh, we've talked a lot about supply chains and imports. The other thing you specialise in, and it's been raised in the COVID-19 discussion, is the issue of foreign investment. Now, last weekend, the threshold for the review of foreign investment proposals was cut to zero. That is, all foreign investment proposals, uh, theoretically at least, would require the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, to sign off on. The stated justification for the change was something I think we can pretty readily understand. It was designed to protect Australian companies in distress at this extraordinary time of COVID-19 spread from being snapped up by foreign corporate vultures. Now, interestingly, this protection has often been framed by journalists and some politicians, uh, including one over your way, Jeff, Andrew Hastie, in terms of specific concerns around Chinese companies, so Chinese corporate vultures. I wanted to ask you, what do you make of the new rules and is there reason to be specifically worried about Chinese companies? Look, the rules strike a bit of a balancing act. Um, it's certainly the case that a number of Australian companies have, because they're particularly exposed to what's going on now, have had their market valuations wiped to almost zero, effectively. They're the capital stock that they've got sitting around and not much else. Um, you would think about airlines, um, any tourism business at all um, are in this position. And what there is around the world is this, there are certainly companies who are in a position to make acquisitions now because even though private capital markets have seized up, um, public sources of financing from state-owned banks and financial institutions are, can often still be available. The, the one that we're most familiar with in Australia in this category is uh, Chinese um, state-owned enterprises and sovereign wealth funds. Um, and the reason we've heard of them a lot is because they've been very active in the Australian mining industry during the mining boom recently. But it's a mistake to think that these kind of state-financed companies who could go on an, an acquisition spree when everyone's valuations are temporarily down uh, solely come from China. State-owned enterprises, sovereign wealth funds, and, and what's sometimes called GLCs or government-linked corporations, 
private companies, but with some kind of political access to government, more, more so than normal. These companies are found in almost every country in the Asia-Pacific region where we find ourselves. Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Japan, Korea, China, everyone has these, particularly in strategic industries. And so there is a, certainly a concern that a, a foreign airline that has access to credits from the government you know, might buy Qantas for cents on the dollar or a foreign um, electronics manufacturer might buy a lithium mine for cents on the dollar, for example, while while this is happening. So this is what the policy is designed to to protect against. It's important to remember that this is is in the foreign investment ban. It's just a review process. Yes. Um, And at a time when the Australian economy desperately needs supply of capital from anywhere to help fiscal Mm. stimulus, we'll certainly... The Foreign Investment Review Board won't be banning these investments. They'll just be making sure that they're not asset-stripping kind of things. Um, and we've fortunately already seen so this this will be time-limited and the policy is going to be reviewed on a set schedule, which is good. They've already taken my advice. But, but more importantly, we've seen important <laughs> statements from David Irvine AO, who's the chair of the Foreign Investment Review Board, that Australia does remain open for investment and the FERB's intention and the Treasurer's intention are, are, are to approve, um, as it's always been the case. Um, um, we just need to have a bit of an extra look at things given the extraordinary circumstances we find ourselves in. And that bit of an extra look will be applied to Japanese and European and US investors as as well as those from China. Jeff, I actually think you've already answered my last question, which was that over the last few years, we have seen a trend towards tighter foreign investment rules. And this is another example. And so I did want to get your take on whether you think this is continuing that move towards a more restrictive regime and what's your outlook? Is it going to be released? So it sounds to me from what you're saying is you're pretty confident that after this extraordinary period we go through now, once that's finished, these restrictions will be released again. Is that right? So, certainly the, the legislative change that was made on Sunday night was it does have a review period on it. That becomes a political decision at the, at the time that it comes up. One of the important things to note about the Foreign Investment Review Board is it's not an approver, it's a reviewer. It's the Foreign Investment Review Board. Um, mm. So the, the FERB makes assessments of applications that meet its screening criteria, which in this case is now everything from everyone, and considers a number of criteria. There's about six. They include things like the uh, taxation and double and, and tax evasion, competition policy, regulatory compliance, the character of the investor, are they government-owned, for example, um, and it makes a recommendation to the treasurer. And depending on the size of the investment, either the treasurer or or uh, for some lower threshold investments, the assistant treasurer makes a decision on those. The thing we need to remember there is it's an advisory board to the treasurer and assistant treasurer, not the decision maker itself. And so ultimately, whether a particular investment with certain conditions or practices attached to it is approved or not becomes a a decision for, as we say, the government of the day. So what we really need to watch there is not so much the legislative change, but how the Australian government views different cases as they come across their desk. We certainly see a huge effort by the Australian government to fiscally stimulate the economy in just recent days and weeks. And any foreign investor who's able to put capital into an Australian flailing business 
that that's not just a corporate raider rip and strip, but is actually saying, well, we want to run this business and make a run of it, I think is going to have a strong and per- persuasive case as to why they're contributing to Australia's economic recovery. Right. And from everything that we've seen from the government and their messaging on this issue, you know, that will be looked, looked very favourably upon. The proof is always in the pudding, though. So what we'll need to do is, you know, investors and people in this space will need to really keep a close eye on how those different cases play out over the next three to six to 12 months. Jeff Wilson, thank you so much for the discussion. That was truly fascinating. And I think, um, you know, once we've, we've talked our way through exports, imports and foreign investment, they're the big three aspects of the economic relationship. And I, I, I'm sure our listeners are going to greatly appreciate your comments today. Thanks very much for joining us. No, thanks for having me on, James. Cheers. That was Professor James Lawrenson, Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute, and Dr Geoffrey Wilson, Research Director at the Perth US Asia Centre, discussing supply chain vulnerabilities amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. To follow our coverage of COVID-19, you can subscribe to the UTS ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or listen to all episodes on our website at australiachinarelations.org. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.